Welcome to Matinees on Main Street. This is a podcast about the history of the movies. It's about the people who created the industry, the people who made the movies, those who exhibit them, and those who watch them. Before I get to the latest episode, I want to let you know about a few new features. The first is our Facebook page. You should be able to find it searching Matinees on Main Street in Facebook. I've posted most of the episodes on the site, as well as a few other items of interest. We all know that Facebook can be inconsistent, so I wouldn't depend upon it for your episodes, but the page is there and you can communicate with me through the page. I'll be honest, I'm not the most diligent person when it comes to Facebook, but I will get around to doing it. What I am more excited about is the first YouTube video I made. It's about the first kinetoscope machines that the Edison Company made for use in their machines. This was the subject of my last podcast, and I hope to have it up when I release the episode. Unfortunately, I struggled with three different video-making programs before I found one that reliably worked. I suppose some of that's my fault for having such an old computer. But several days after I uploaded the podcast, I was able to upload the video. Again... This video is so new that it's still not consistently popping up on the YouTube searches. It's probably going to take some time before the Matinees on Main Street podcast, the YouTube channel, and the videos start showing up regularly in searches. I found it by searching Google for Edison Company First Commercial Kinetoscope Films. That's quite a mouthful, but... The image of my video did show up on the first page using those terms. After all, quite a lot of film students have posted Edison clips online, and that's quite a good thing, as those clips were hardly ever seen 30 years ago. Anyway, on to our story about William Kennedy Laurie Dixon. The last episode was a bit of a review, as the subject was the first kinetoscope films. At one point I mentioned the confusing nature of the early years of the movies. Well, the tangled threads of the history of the movies are not going to untangle anytime soon. So I'll try to keep this story focused on the more relevant aspects, and I apologize in advance to the people in this history who get left out. Edison's marketing of the kinetoscope signaled to a number of men that Edison wasn't interested in making a projector. Those gentlemen started to develop their own projectors, and surprisingly, this push to project images upon a screen was led by none other than William Laurie Dixon, the man in charge of creating Edison's kinetoscope. He would be responsible for suggesting both a knockoff of the kinetoscopes, known as the mutoscope, and the idea of the creation of two separate projectors, one known as the idoloscope and the other known as the biograph. Eventually, the mutoscope and the biograph will be the major competitors to Edison's machines in America. Their success will lead to an all-out war that will be declared by the Edison Company against the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company. But that's a later story. For now, let's talk about Laurie Dixon and what some might consider his double life at the Edison facilities. 
People admired Edison, which is why so many people tried to discourage his bad choices and careless mistakes. A good number of mechanics and scientists applied for work at his facilities, and he hired quite a number of them. But of all of them, only William Kennedy Laurie Dixon was able to consistently work so close to Edison. He helped run the Girk Street plant in Manhattan, and he supervised the laying of electrical wires in New York City for the Edison Company. He also worked on both the mining project as well as the kinetoscope project. He repeatedly worked as the Edison Company's photographer, taking pictures of the staff and facility, and a biography of Edison was written by Dixon and his sister. Dixon also seems to have occasionally managed the East Orange facility when Edison left for long periods of time. He was one of the few employees able to spend time at Edison's Florida residence, which was what he did after he suffered a mental breakdown in 1893. It's fair to say that Edison had a lot of respect for Dixon, probably close to the amount of respect that Dixon held for Edison. What may have changed the relationship between the two men more than anything else was the way the economy was collapsing. It had started back in 1891 in Europe, but had finally hit the States at just around the same time as Dixon's health issues. After he returned to New Jersey early in that year, he was back in charge of his projects, but with contemporary interest in the mining project dwindling due to the economic situation, he was spending more and more time working on the kinetoscope project. This included filming vaudeville stars in the Black Mariah studio, developing the negatives, creating the positives that would run inside of the kinetoscope machine, and supervising the early production assembly of the console viewing machines. Because of this redirecting of Dixon's work, he would spend much of his time at the manufacturing facility, which was known as the Silver Lake plant and was about three miles east of the R&D laboratory. Unfortunately, at the same time that Dixon was working at the Silver Lake facility, Edison had relieved Alfred Tate of his job as head of manufacturing there and replaced him with William Gilmore. Tate had been Edison's secretary, one of several men in that role. He fell into the job when he replaced Charles Insull, who was made manager of the Schenectady plant. Insull was a very organized man and proved to be quite capable. One day, he would become the power behind Chicago's network of electrical companies before it all crumbled down during the Depression. But at this time, he was one of Edison's most trusted men. As Edison's second secretary, Tate was also a man to be trusted, which was why he was put in charge of the manufacturing facility. Unfortunately, the collapsing economy was playing havoc on the market of phonographs, as well as Tate's reputation as a supervisor. Tate was removed and instead ended up becoming one of the investors in the kinetoscope. 
Edison asked Insull whether he could suggest a good replacement for Tate, and he suggested William Gilmore, who seems to have been the production manager under Insull. I've mentioned Gilmore before, but as a refresher, he was a good manager but achieved that by being rather heavy-handed and bullish about what he needed to have done. Dixon didn't like Gilmore, although no one exactly knows why. When Gilmore started working as the Silver Lake supervisor, Dixon's hatred was so immediate that Dixon biographer Paul Spears suggested that the problem went way back. It may have reached back to the days when both men worked at the Girk Street plant, but no one knows why. Dixon had great admiration for Edison, but now he was three miles away and working under Gilmore. Resentment set in. It also seems as if Dixon may have been a bit of a prima donna. There is a sense that he liked being the star of his own show, something that Edison may have allowed. After all, Edison's primary interest had always been in inventing. No one has ever credited him with being a great manager or being someone with great people skills. It seems that as long as everyone did their work, he allowed eccentric behavior. At the same time that this caustic situation was developing, the economic downturn was mushrooming, and very few people at that time would have believed that things would go as badly as they did. By the end of the summer of 1893, Edison was letting go of many of his employees, including many lab workers. By the end of 1894, a staff of close to 40 mechanics had been reduced to four, and I'd guessed that was only because those four still had work to do. There were very few projects in the lab, and in a way, Dixon's move to Silver Lake at least kept him employed. But he continued to carry that grudge against Gilmore, and it may have been implacable. If Dixon considered Gilmore his sworn enemy, and he really did say it in those words, his good friend was Harry Marvin although they only saw each other occasionally. Marvin had also worked with Dixon at the Girk Street plant, and he later worked at Edison's Schenectady Manufacturing Facility. By the early 1890s, Marvin was living in Syracuse, New York, and Dixon and his wife would take summer vacations in the area. It was also at this time that Harry Marvin introduced Dixon to another friend of his, Marvin Kasler. Kassler worked for his cousin, Charles Leip, who ran a machine shop, also in Syracuse. The three mechanics became lifelong friends, and among the ideas they worked on together was developing a detective camera. Dixon must have talked about the Edison projects he worked on at these times, at least occasionally. He and Harry had both worked for Edison, and once the kinetoscope was on the market, Dixon and his friends must have discussed the machine. Apparently, this discussion somehow turned to alternative ideas that might have worked, as well as the possibility of designing a machine using those ideas. Anything that they attempted to create had to be legally different from the kinetoscope. Actually, the idea of making an alternative to the kinetoscope was a very sticky subject. While he respected the man immensely, Dixon believed that Edison's choices in the field of movie-making machines were wrong. 
he became very conflicted concerning his loyalties and his need to prove he was right. In the end, Dixon refused to believe that he was being disloyal to Edison and he would spend the rest of his life defending that position. Despite his so-called loyalty, work started on a competitive version of the kinetoscope and Dixon felt the need to make a number of suggestions about their machine so that it would not violate the Edison patent. His ideas included the use of photographs presented in the style of a flipbook rather than sequential images on a camera film. He also discussed some of this with Edison, which may have been simply his way of validating his loyalty. Edison, a little clueless when it came to human nature, begrudgingly agreed that Edison could share that idea without really understanding the complications it caused. This begins the life of the mutoscope. The mutoscope was a desktop device that held a large stack of cards made of heavy-duty photograph paper. Each card represented one image in a sequence of photographs. The machine had no motor, and for the cost of a nickel, you could turn a crank and watch what must have been somewhere around 1,900 photo cards flip by as fast as you wanted. These images were illuminated by a small light, and you could watch the minute or so of action play out as they flipped. The large stack of cards were referred to as a barrel, and due to using larger film, it was easy to see images that were much bigger than the kind you viewed in the kinetoscope. Dixon kept Edison informed of the project, so as to avoid patent violations with his employer. He also wanted to make sure that nothing truly disturbed the Edison worldview, and as long as Edison lacked any long-term faith in the kinetoscope, it didn't look as if the mutoscope would be any real problem to the company. Ironically, while the kinetoscope had a short shelf life, the mutoscope would go on in some form into the 1920s. The real problem was providing replacement films, or barrels of cards. Strangely, while Edison accepted the machine, he wouldn't agree to allow Dixon and his friends to use Edison images on the mutoscope. Coincidentally, the man responsible for patenting Edison's movies was Dixon. The patented copies submitted to the Library of Congress were saved on the same type of photocards that the mutoscope used. So if Dixon had been a little less moral, it wouldn't have been that troublesome for him to copy some of Edison's films. But he didn't. This small group, soon to be known as the Mutoscope Company, were really the only competition that Edison had in the field of movie-making machines. That would soon change. Left without movies, Dixon, Marvin, Kasler, and their partner Elias Koopman had to make their own movie camera, with Edison's permission, of course, as long as it didn't violate any potential Edison patent. The mutoscope prototype was built at the Leip Metalworking Shop and was followed by the design and building of a movie camera called the Mutograph. Unfortunately, their development process was taking much longer than they had wanted, and in the spring of 1896, as they were looking to start marketing the mutoscope, a sudden interest in projectors developed in the vaudeville houses. 
This meant that Dixon, Marvin, Kassler, and Koopman now had to create a projector rather than just marketing their mutoscope. Obviously, considering his experience with Edison, Dixon's knowledge was in demand. At the same time that he was providing suggestions to his mutoscope partners, he was also caught in another project that developed outside of the Edison facilities. This one would prove to be much more damaging to his relationship with Edison. This group involved the Latham family of Richmond, Virginia. Dixon seems to have been entangled with their project not long after he had started to plan the mutoscope with his Syracuse friends. I talked about the Lathams back in episode 12, but just to refresh your memory, there were two brothers, one named Otway, the other named Gray, and their father, Woodville Latham, who was a university chemistry professor. The family was from Richmond, Virginia, but had spent time in Mississippi and West Virginia. The father had made recent money investing in real estate, and now the two sons, who worked in the pharmaceutical trade, had come to New York to make money by investing. In this case, it meant investing in Edison's inventions. After visiting a kinetoscope parlor, they partnered with their friend Enoch Rector and hit upon the idea of using kinetoscopes to market films of boxing matches. The fight film they made between Mike Leonard and Jack Cushing proved to be a very popular film, but only for a short time. During its showing, they observed the crowd that slowly moved through their kinetoscope parlor and heard people mention the idea of a projected fight, one that would show a fight to say a hundred people at a time. What followed was a sequel of sorts, and like most sequels, the second film was built upon the success of the first. The Lathams had required a large order of kinetoscopes to be made and delivered with the intent of selling or leasing them throughout the United States. The first fight film had a cash purse of $300, but the stakes were raised significantly for the second film. The Leonard Cushing fight had a very restricted market as the film was placed in a small number of kinetoscopes and it was only regionally exhibited. Still, the fight proved to be successful enough for the kinetoscope exhibiting company's investors, meaning primarily Tilden Pharmaceuticals, to open up their pocketbooks and suggest a purse of $15,000 for the second fight film. Otway sent a letter to William Brady, the manager of boxing champion Gentleman Jim Corbett, to remind him of the promise he had made to his friend Otway. The Lathams took the response back to their fellow investors and discussed it. As the Lathams were still dependent upon the Edison camera, they wouldn't be able to film a fight beyond the New York area. This meant that the purse was dependent upon whom they could bring to the ring to fight Corbett at the Edison Studios. 
At the same time, any fight at Edison's facilities would not qualify as a title match. The public wanted to see the aging John Sullivan battle back for his title. And after Sullivan, the name most mentioned was Peter Jackson. Jackson was probably the third greatest boxer of that time, a black West Indian who had won the Australian title. Unfortunately, American boxers wouldn't fight him, probably because of race. Sullivan had refused to fight him, and boxing historians still debate on who would have won if the two had met. Corbett had boxed Jackson when it boosted his reputation, but refused to do so now that he was the champion. So the Lathams had to scrounge around for a fighter who would go six rounds with Corbett, and they offered the champ $5,000 to keep his opponent on his feet for five rounds and knock him out in the sixth. Corbett was less interested in fighting for his title than he was in using the fights to promote his play, Gentleman Jack. In this era, most fighters used their titles to enter other ventures, such as their own business or to become a stage star. They could also lend out their names to promote various products as well as sponsoring syndicated newspaper columns. Corbett particularly had a cultured reputation that could be used to market products with class. The fight was arranged quickly, and the ring was expanded to 14 feet square. Obviously, this wasn't going to be a title fight. No one really knew anything about the opponent, Peter Courtney. He was from Newark and had been proclaimed the heavyweight champion of New Jersey, possibly for the sake of the film. All anyone knew was he claimed that he had gone four rounds with Bob Fitzsimmons, the latest big name in boxing. Unlike the secretiveness of the Leonard Cushing fight, the press hovered around the Corbett entourage. With his play on Broadway, Corbett had everyone, including the press, following him over the Hudson to the Edison facility. That is, everyone except his manager, Brady who overslept and showed up just in time. Like agreed upon, the fight went six rounds. Corbett kept Courtney on his feet until the last round when he decked him and Courtney went down. As Corbett was appearing in his play that night, his group didn't stay for dinner at Davis's, but he shaked Courtney's hand and congratulated him on being so game. Corbett won the winner-take-all fight, but he and Brady also had a flat fee coming from the Kinetoscope take, $150 a week. This assumed that Kinetoscope plays would continue forever. In the beginning, when it was discovered that the films were breaking after installation, the machine's profitability probably looked doubtful. But after Edison's people made adjustments, the machines proved to be quite profitable. The rate at which Corbett and Brady were paid soon was reduced to $50 a week. Corbett would eventually earn over $20,000 from the arrangement. This news did not stay quiet for long. Edison got into a court fight because of the film. Simply put, boxing was illegal in New Jersey. Edison attempted to get around the law by stating that his filming of fights were both staged and scientifically important. 
By the end of the year, he also announced that he would be no longer making any fight films. This left the Lathams with a real problem that could only be solved by making a movie camera. And while they were at it, why not make the projector they had been talking about for so long? They asked their father if he could devise such a machine, and soon they were knocking on Dixon's door, asking for help. The problem was that the Dixons and the Lathams had become social friends. The Lathams spent time at the Edison Manufacturing Plant talking with Gilmore and Dixon. In the evenings, it was not uncommon for the Lathams to spend time with the Dixon family, sharing food and talk. Lori liked Woodville, as both had strong science backgrounds as well as ties to Richmond. Things seemed rather pleasant until Woodville broached the subject of the projector. By this time, Woodville, Gray, and Otway all knew that Dixon had not only built the kinetoscope, which he said he had done alone, but that a camera and a projector had also been built, although not marketed. While the Syracuse men had not yet formed a company, the Lathams had. They were already courting Dixon in an attempt to lure him into the incorporation scheme known as the Lambda Corporation. They wanted to pick his brain about details concerning Projector. This was long before Marvin, Kasler, and Koopman decided upon the same idea. While there was nothing wrong in the Lathams asking about how projectors work, Dixon had an obligation to the Edison Company to refuse to reveal specific information. Nowadays, it's known as a confidentiality agreement, a document that every developer signs. What Dixon needed was a strong backbone when dealing with his friends. The Lathams were good at reminding Dixon of some of the slights he had mentioned at work and used them to weaken his loyalty to Edison. At first, he proved to be quite gullible. Despite his moral attitude, Dixon was attracted to the Latham's idea of building a projector to exhibit boxing matches. At first, this required Dixon to ask Edison about whether the company would ever make in market a projector, and Edison said no. Soon after, Dixon used one of the Latham's kinetoscopes to see if it could be reassembled as a projector. There had been attempts at doing this in both England and France, and now Dixon was trying it. Around the same time, Dixon had suggested that the Lathams hire a former co-worker of his named Eugene Laust. Laust had worked for Edison a few years back, but seemed to have lost his job at the beginning of the Depression. He attempted to work independently, but once times became difficult, he found himself unemployed. Dixon told Laust about the Latham's search for a development mechanic, and Laust accepted the job. Before they could make a camera, the group needed to ensure that their process would even work, so they started building the projector. Supposedly, Dixon didn't help with its creation, leaving it to Woodville, Latham, and Laust. At the same time, things were souring between Dixon and the Edison Company. Since Gilmore became his manager, Dixon was bothered to a great degree. Things that Dixon could ask Edison now had to be filtered through Gilmore's rather brusque and determined attitude. Worse, 
Gilmore seemed to consider Dixon a bit of a gadabout. He was doing things for other people when his job should be focused on making movies for the kinetoscope. Also, Edison's financial state was now becoming troublesome. Between the financial crash and the money he had spent on the mining project, he needed to focus on the work at hand and cut costs wherever there was excess. It's hard to tell whether Edison considered Dixon distracted or even a little scatterbrained, but it does seem that he was bothered by Dixon's desire for attention. In particular, the Dixon's book about Edison bothered the electrical wizard. It seemed too much like hero worship, something that Edison was uncomfortable with. Edison was very cagey about his fame. He was willing to use his celebrity to gain respect, to bolster his reputation, and to obtain greater job opportunities. But it was simply a necessary evil. On the other hand, Dixon seemed attracted to celebrity, giving him a reason to spurn his hierarchy of the manufacturing facility. Add to this the problems with the fight films. While Edison publicly renounced the fight films at the end of 1894, just prior to that, Dixon had created a number of them for the Raff and Gammons Kinetoscope Company, with Edison's approval. Some of these were comedic bouts. At least, that's what was suggested during the state investigation into the making of the Courtney Corbett fight. This was again a situation in which Edison's loyal managers isolated him from the embarrassment of an investigation by the state of New Jersey. During this time, Dixon leaned upon his wife and his friendships, and the Lathams were able to take advantage of this by getting Dixon to make greater contributions to the design of the movie projector. Infamously, in February of 1895, Dixon was talking to hand-cranking the Latham camera while he filmed someone swinging a lit lantern. He then developed a strip of film and took it to Woodville, who was sick at the time. More than anything, this seems to have been the moment that pushed Dixon away from being just a consultant to being a conspirator, at least in the eyes of the Edison Company. Among his most important ideas that he suggested to the Lathams was one he didn't tell his Syracuse friends, a film feeding mechanism. There are two ways to run a strip of film through a projector, continuously or intermittently. Still, both ways have to give the impression that the image on the film could move. The problem with continuous feed was that it was easy to blur the image. Some later projectors would use a spinning metal plate with an opening in it to fix the image for just a fraction of a second. This was an idea that Edison would later also use. The plate rotated at the same speed in which each image passed by, allowing a small glimpse of the image to flicker upon the screen. The intermittent process required each image to stop for a small fraction of a second as the light passed through the image forward onto the screen. In between each frozen moment, something blocked the projection as each image of the film moved forward. The problem with intermittent feed was that it put a lot of strain on the roll of film. The film, 
rather than simply being pulled through the machine, was now intermittently yanked by the stop-and-start device. As long as people were running those short Edison strips in their cameras, the yanking was not much of a strain. But even with the first fight film, the Lathams and crew were aware of the greater stress on the film. For some time, the Lathams experimented with continuous feed, as was used in the kinetoscope, but eventually Dixon recommended the intermittent style as a better way of presenting moving images, although it's not sure whether he knew how to solve the problem of intermittent yanking. The solution would finally be the Latham's ticket to fame, and it was a solution so simple it was ingenious. Who conceived the Latham loop as anyone's guess? It could have been Woodville Latham, the father, or his son, Otway, the more scientifically savvy of the two brothers. Some say it was their mechanic, Eugene Laust, which is a decent guess. Terry Ramsey, the first great film historian, stated that it was Latham's partner, Enoch Rector, who was also pretty sharp at science. Whoever it was, the idea involved the continuously turning gear that created a film loop just ahead of the intermittent device. As the gear created the small bit of slack, the intermittent device yanked the slack away, rather than yanking at the entire roll of film. The Lathams would soon patent this loop, but it would take several years in a transfer of the patent title before it was officially acknowledged. The relationship between Dixon and the Lathams is quite puzzling, because he would repeatedly claim that he had grown wary of them, and yet at this time he continued to visit the family as well as the Manhattan lab where the creation of the moving picture projector was being made. So far, Edison seemed to know what was going on as Dixon filled him in. Dixon even attempted a demonstration of the projector one evening and felt it was satisfactory. But in between this development, the Lathams were attempting to separate Dixon from the Edison company, something he didn't want to do, but proved unable to stop. Finally, the Lathams and Rector agreed to offer Dixon a quarter of the company's stock if he would just quit Edison and work for them. Up to this point, Dixon seems to have been having it both ways. He was making kinetoscope films for the Edison Company, assisting in designing the munoscope, and helping the Lathams build a projector and a camera. Dixon informed Edison and Gilmore of the stock offer, which amounted to $125,000 in Lambda Company stock. Gilmore told Dixon that he was disloyal and his relationship with the Lathams was dishonorable. Dixon flew into a rage. When Dixon took Gilmore's accusations to Edison, Gilmore denied it, and Edison believed him. Did Gilmore say those things? It's possible. Did Dixon misinterpret something that Gilmore said? That's also possible. It's possible that both Gilmore and Edison believe that Dixon's worth may have suffered due to his outside activities and his prideful reactions to Gilmore's demands. As gifted as he was, he believed that the company's slights were directed at him rather than seeing them as an attempt to solve a difficult financial situation. Dixon demanded that Edison pick between he and Gilmore, 
Of course, Edison backed as a manufacturing manager. Recently, the Lathams had transferred their offer of Lambda stock to their corporate lawyer, who was holding it for Dixon. Now, Dixon quit, feeling humiliated and confused. But once he officially left the Edison company, the lawyer offered to transfer the stock over to him. Dixon turned it down. Over the years, he claimed that he had suddenly realized that he could not trust the Lathams. Unfortunately, he became aware of this distrust too late to save his career in R&D, and he also continued to visit the Lathams as friends for some time after he quit. In early May of 1895, just a few weeks after Dixon's final days at the Edison Company, the Lathams filmed young Griffo and Charlie Barnett in a fight on the roof of the Madison Square Garden. This was the second of three buildings known by that name and was only five years old at the time. Madison Square Garden II was used primarily for sporting events and over 17,000 people paid big money to attend the garden's opening. The roof included a famous restaurant in the private residence of the building's famous architect, Stanford White. Both the restaurant and the residence would be involved in White's infamous murder a decade later. On the roof, there was also a theater with what seems to be a kind of open-air beer garden, as well as a series of Moorish-styled small towers, along with a massive one styled on a bell tower in Seville, Spain. Somewhere within this entertaining opulence was enough room to stage a prize fight. One source claimed that the 11 a.m. rooftop bout was really a recreation of a bout held earlier in the morning on the main garden's floor. But the source articles I've read don't suggest that at all. All those articles firmly suggested that everyone met to film a fight. The Lathams seem to have known the Australian fighter Albert Griffiths, as one newspaper seemed to suggest that he was living in New York at that time. He had been on their cinematic radar for some time, and his pairing with Charlie Barnett seems to have been an attempt for a fairly even fight. It went four rounds, with 30 seconds between each round. Apparently, the first three rounds went for one minute, while it was agreed that the last round would go for two. Apparently, Griffo was not in the best of shape, so the relatively unknown Barnett seems to have put up good resistance. Although Griffith won on points, no winner was actually called. After all, the purpose was to film a fight for projection purposes. Twenty-five men were invited to the Cinnabout, including a number of reporters. The fight was supposed to start at 10.30, but was delayed due to the late arrival of Dixon. The two men fought in front of several bright white sheets, and when the Panopticon filmed the bout, the fighters ended up looking as if they were in shadows. The Lathams soon opened another parlor in Manhattan, but before they could even premiere the film, young Griffo got in trouble over an incident in Brooklyn where he was accused of hitting a 10-year-old boy. It was an incident severe enough that the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children got involved. Griffo was found guilty and spent a year in prison. So much for the success of the boxing film.
By early summer, the Lathams had filmed a small number of other films that they packaged with the young Griffo bout and promoted with their renamed Idoloscope. By this time, nothing was going right. Samuel Tilden, Enoch Rector, and even Eugene Laust had followed Dixon's lead and left the group in order to pursue other things. This left the Latham brothers alone, and the Idoloscope struggled on without financing before disappearing altogether. A year later, Dixon was with the Mutoscope group. He chose to be a silent partner and was already fading away from the growing moving picture scene as many more people became involved in the movies, many more changes were affecting the novelty's growth, and a number of projected movies were now a vaudeville rage. Dixon still had half of his life to live, but his days as an important innovator were done. The Lathams and the Mutoscope group were not the only people attempting to create moving picture projection. There were other people in America, France, and Britain looking into the idea. I'm going to try to look into the creation of the machines in Europe if I can find enough information. But next time, we'll look at two other Americans who eventually created a moving picture machine. This would be the machine that Edison would use as his projector, at least for a time. Unfortunately, these two men would have an even worse time at it than did Dixon and Gilmore. Thank you for listening.